this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Leszczycki as I Knew Him, written by Ethel Newcomb and published in 1921 by D. Appleton and Company. Chapter 18 Leszczycki was sometimes heard to remark that orchestra leaders knew nothing, an opinion which could be traced more or less to his resentment against certain actions of Gustav Mahler. When Mahler came to Vienna, he superseded Hans Richter, who was a great friend of Leszczycki, but Leszczycki admired and respected Mahler greatly. At the same time, he was shocked at Mahler's too autocratic and revolutionary methods. There was also the element of a personal grievance in their relationship, as Mahler announced that there would be no more soloists in the Philharmonic concerts. Hans Richter had been very willing to bring out Leszczycki's pupils in these concerts. On one occasion, Leszczycki went to Mahler to ask for an engagement for a celebrated artist who was one of his pupils, and Mahler did not refuse him. Leszczycki tried to be friendly whenever they met, but only half succeeded because Leszczycki was as free as Mahler himself, and the sparks usually flew. A reported quarrel between the two once furnished Vienna with much amusing gossip. It was really not a quarrel at all, Leszczycki said, but others told that it had threatened to become nothing short of a personal encounter before both men got control of themselves. Paderewski had just played in Vienna for the first time in many years, and there was a small supper given for him at the house of two distinguished American gentlemen, to which Leszczycki and Mahler were invited. Mahler had arrived, and Paderewski was late. Mahler fidgeted and fumed. Great men never come late, he remarked to Leszczycki, who glared and retorted, For once you are mistaken, Herr Director. Mahler was very silent the rest of the evening, and Leszczycki more brilliant than ever. From the box which he occupied at the concerts of the Philharmonic when he was not conducting, Mahler would hiss anyone who came into the hall during the performance. At one concert, he was hissing loudly when the Emperor Francis Joseph came in. The people around were indignant, but the Emperor quieted everyone, remarking, No matter, it is only Mahler. Mahler himself was treated almost like a king in Vienna, and received the greatest recognition and acclaim. Nevertheless, his bad manners were notorious, and there was sometimes public resentment of them. His actions toward Winkelmann, the famous tenor of the opera, was an instance of egotistical high-handedness, which earned him a great deal of wrathful comment and criticism. Winkelmann was old at the time, his art scarcely more than an echo of its earlier glory, but he was still received with that hero-worship and touching loyalty which distinguishes the Viennese public. There was a clash between him and Mahler, 
and his resignation was requested. As Winkelmann came out into the little square back of the opera house, he was greeted by the shouts of hundreds of people who had gathered there protesting against his resignation. They hoisted him to their shoulders and carried him through the streets. They demanded the withdrawal of his resignation, and Mahler finally permitted him to continue, but he never relaxed in his search for an opportunity to humiliate this great artist. And one day he took advantage of some trivial circumstances to send him a curt note of dismissal. Madame Frances Seville was another who suffered from Mahler's imperious and unjust temper. At a rehearsal, she had the temerity to disagree with him over a point of phrasing, and before several others of the company was requested by him to resign. Her hosts of admirers were incensed at this. When Alfred Grunfeld heard of the affair, he started for the opera house with a horsewhip in hand to avenge the insult, but changed his mind on the way. When Mahler's engagement to be married was announced in Vienna, it was reported that one of the men in the orchestra came forward to offer his congratulations. This is a place of rehearsal for the concerts and nothing else, said Mahler, and knocked him down on the spot. But Leschetitsky himself was as quick-tempered and impulsive as anyone, although many of Mahler's traits seemed brutal and inhuman to him. I myself once witnessed a scene between him and a royal highness which took my breath away. When the royal carriage drew up at his door, Leschetitsky held up a hand as though to say, Here is something interesting. This visit was for the purpose of interviewing Leschetitsky about engaging one of his pupils to teach at the castle in the country during the summer. I went into the next room. For a time there was steady talking, then a crescendo of excitement in the voices, followed by a long silence. The door opened, and the two walked out from the hall. Just as his imperial and royal highness turned to say goodbye, Leschetitsky looked him squarely in the eyes and made the long nose at him. "'What do you think?' said Leschetitsky afterward. "'I set a moderate price for the lessons and suggested Martha Schmidt, who would be brilliantly capable of that work, if she would accept. But he thought it too much and tried to bargain with me for the smallest possible price.' Stiffness and lack of humor or spontaneity provoked in him a spirit of mischief, which was the cause of more than one hilarious situation. Those who were present at the class one evening will never forget his antics with a titled lady whose formality and dullness irritated him to the point of making her a most ridiculous figure. The classes were really private musicals and not open to the public, but artists who visited Vienna were always welcome, and were usually invited by Leschetitsky to stay for supper afterward. One of the pupils asked to bring this lady, and after the class also requested Leschetitsky to invite her to supper. I am sure he never would have asked her of his own accord, for he had been amused and bored the whole evening by her intensely prim, unbending manner. She stood rigidly, 
and bowed stiffly at everything Leshetitsky said without making any reply. As he escorted her out into the hall after the class was over, the pupils were already on their way up the broad staircase to the room above, where Leshetitsky smoked and talked after the class until the supper table was prepared. At the other end of the hall there was a spiral staircase which led perpendicularly to the floor above. Leshetitsky walked with the countess past the first stairway to the second. "'Come, madame, our pupils are going upstairs,' taking her by the hand. "'Let us go up. This is the way we do it.' With astonishing agility he sprang up the spiral stairs, calling to the countess to come along. Panting and purple with exertion and confusion, she scrambled after him. At last she was obliged to unbend and say something intelligible. At the supper-table afterward we were so amused at the pointed remarks that Leshetitsky made, and his witty shafts directed against stupidity and stiffness and lack of expression, that we all had great difficulty in remembering our manners. A pretentious manner was disturbing to Leshetitsky, and he used to tell amusing stories about Madame Clara Schumann, whose rather pompous personality was antagonistic to him. He told about her stage appearance, and felt that she had not always been thoughtful enough about how it would appear to others. She rather affected no manner at all, and used to sit knitting in the audience until her time came to play and sometimes, as she walked to the stage, she was so deeply lost in thought that she forgot to look where she was going. Once, unfortunately, she missed the step to the stage and fell sprawling forward to the consternation of the audience. Once, when she was giving a concert in Russia, he met her at a small reception, and she asked to hear one of his pupils play. He sent for the young lady, whom he always referred to then and afterward as the best pupil he had ever had. Her repertoire was literally unlimited. Madame Schumann inquired of her in a very grand manner what she played. Leshetitsky managed to whisper to her to say that she played everything. "'Well, I suppose that is not true, my child,' Madame Schumann smilingly replied." but the girl repeated that she would play anything Madame Schumann asked for. The Henselt Concerto, she suggested. Her challenge was immediately accepted. Leshetitsky always enjoyed telling of a little episode that occurred between Chopin and Madame Schumann, who was very proud of her solid German interpretation of his compositions. Chopin remarked to her, I see no reason why such a great artist as yourself should not play my compositions exactly as you feel like playing them. Then, in an aside, he went on, even without any feeling at all. Leshetitsky's talked-of aversion to Brahms's music is not authentic. It was he who gave the Brahms concerto in D minor one of its first public performances, its first in Russia. Brahms and Leshetitsky conferred upon the orchestration, and Leshetitsky wanted some changes made. They always disagreed, but Leshetitsky was happily surprised to find his suggestions accepted in the printed score. 
The songs in orchestral works, everything but the piano pieces, he admired very much. He contended that Brahms had not written one original melody for the piano, and he would grow visibly nervous over whole pages which were given up, as he said, to Tweedledee and Tweedledum. I once brought to him the rhapsody in E-flat, with which he was not familiar, when he seemed surprised at the opening bars and exclaimed, "'Well, at last, there is an original melody.' As I went on playing, I saw him tiptoe to the back of the room to a shelf of old music. "'Stop playing,' he said. "'I have an idea.' For a long time he searched, and then triumphantly produced a certain old Russian march, which was the exact theme of the opening bars of the Rhapsody. His theory was vindicated. Brahms had written no original melody for the piano. When they were together, Brahms always made fun of Leschetizky's compositions, and Leschetizky made fun of Brahms's piano pieces. If anyone else spoke disparagingly of Brahms, Leschetizky was the first to correct him, and insisted that his pupils learn not only the great variations, but the smaller pieces as well. When I asked him one time if I should study one of the concertos, he looked at me in the greatest astonishment, saying, "'What do you mean by that? You must learn every note he has written for the piano.' It was the Brahms fad to which Leschetizky objected, the affectation of profundity among a certain group in Vienna when speaking of Brahms irritated him. These people adopted a pose of great intellectuality, spurning any grace of musical or personal expression. They worshipped Brahms in plain garments and played his music as tastelessly as they dressed, of a certain pianist, noted for her dry performances of Brahms's music, Leschetizky used to say, Of course, to be really deep enough to play Brahms, one must be middle-aged, wear spectacles, and adopt dress reform. At one time it was popular to give entire programs of Brahms's piano pieces. In England, the cult was particularly strong many people appearing awestruck on repeating his name. When English girls came to Ischl, where Brahms spent his summers, Leschetizky would sarcastically ask them if they had come to live in the same street with Brahms and assure them that there were far more romantic spots in the Salzkammergut. In reality, Brahms and Leschetizky were the best of friends. Every summer they met in Ischl, and always started together for Karlsbad in the autumn to take the cure. According to all reports, quarreling all the way about their different ideas of composition, interpretation, and technique. Some of us stood under Brahms's window one night, listening to his playing of the F major romanza. It sounded as though he were striking every note with a raised hand, and there was no quality to the tone nor shading to the phrases. One realized how different were his ideas from Leschetizky's about the art of piano playing. On one occasion, Brahms told Leschetizky that his pieces were only fit for sweet sixteen and for young men in love. Well, retorted Leschetizky, yours are only fit for the years after ninety. 
For a long time I lived in a house in Vienna, near the Houses of Parliament, past which Brahms used to walk twice a day. He walked very rapidly, and one never saw him with a hat on his head, even in winter. Swinging it in his hand, he always hurried along, looking very much agitated, his gentle face a dark red from the illness which afflicted him the last years of his life. At the Philharmonic concerts, whenever his works were performed, he would be greeted by a tremendous ovation. Toward the end of his life, when he was too ill to walk or stand without support, he was still brought to the concerts and lifted from his seat in the artist's box to acknowledge the storms of applause. It was a glorious sight to see a living composer so rapturously acclaimed. No sooner would the applause die down than it began again, Richter joining in by beating loudly on the desk with his baton. Richter seemed only too happy to allow himself to be carried away by these ovations for Brahms. He smiled up at the artist's box and waved his hands to his great contemporary, Brahms sometimes bowing in acknowledgement to Richter. Only Vienna could furnish such a public, immoderate almost, in its expression of delight. A familiar sight in the audience was Leschetizky, steadily applauding until the end. After Brahms's death, we sat one evening with Leschetizky at a performance of one of his symphonies. We looked up at the box where Brahms had so often sat. Leschetizky's eyes filled with tears as he said, it will be a long time before there is another as great as Brahms. This audience misses seeing him up there in that box, but they will never cease to applaud in Vienna these great symphonies. Yes, I envy him this great tribute, and he used to envy me some of the talented ones who came to study with me, some who will one day be great composers too. The death of Brahms was a sad event to Leschetizky. I recall that it was my day to play for him, and accordingly I went to his house. Madame Leschetizka stated that he had sat all night beside Brahms's coffin and could not give any lessons or see anyone. One of the strongest affections of Leschetizky's life was for Rubinstein, whose playing he also adored. They had been intimately associated in St. Petersburg and were also rivals for the affections of the lady who afterward became Leschetizky's wife. Leschetizky related many stories of their years of association at the conservatory at St. Petersburg. There were stories of examinations and rehearsals, and the humor of some of them could only be appreciated if one knew how Leschetizky loved Rubinstein and admired his art. They used to direct the orchestra for each other's performances of works for orchestra and piano. According to Leschetizky, Rubinstein could rarely pass over without mishap certain passages in the last movement of the Schumann Concerto. Leschetizky begged him once, before one of these concerts, not to throw his hands so high in the air when he broke down, for no one cared whether or not he made a mistake, so wonderfully inspiring was his playing in other ways. The music was probably too beautiful to Rubinstein, thought Leschetizky, 
for him to study it long enough to be technically perfect, and he played so much according to his feelings at the moment that if he cared at all what the effect was upon his audience, he was entirely unaware of it. Once at the conservatory, Rubinstein burst into Leschetizky's room, tearing his hair over his efforts to make one of his good pupils play a rhapsody of Liszt as he wanted it played. The pupil was in tears, and Rubinstein was in despair. He finally brought his shattered pupil to the piano, where she made another vain attempt to imitate Rubinstein's interpretation. "'She tries to play it too fast,' said Rubinstein. "'It should go slower. This way.' And going to the piano, he played it with such amazing rapidity that when he had finished, he turned to find both Leschetizky and his pupil holding their sides with laughter. "'Was that really fast?' humbly inquired Rubinstein. He had intended to dedicate one of his larger works to Leschetizky, but on one occasion seemed to take offense at some observation that Leschetizky made about his manner of repeating several single notes in his compositions. Leschetizky had good-naturedly played G's and D's from one end of the keyboard to the other, and then walked on in the room, still trying to repeat these notes in the air. Rubinstein showed no signs of annoyance at the time, but the next day scratched out the dedication on the manuscript, and the printed editions bore the name of someone else. Shortly before his death, Rubinstein came to Vienna to visit Leschetizky. He took the greatest interest in Leschetizky's pupils, and his visit happened to coincide with one of the Wednesday evening classes. Accordingly, this was to be a gala performance, and Rubinstein promised to play for the students afterward. Leschetizky's trusted and tried butler was instructed to watch at the door for the prettiest and best-dressed girls, and to be sure to seat them only in the front rows. Rubinstein is aesthetic! said Leschetizky, speaking this word also to the butler, who yearly became more intelligent and wise, as well as fonder of his master. Little things sometimes disturb Rubinstein. We must have flowers also. Rubinstein listened with the greatest interest to the playing of the pupils, but at eleven o'clock had disappeared entirely. Leschetizky went upstairs in search of him, and found him in one of the back rooms, pacing the floor, pale and agitated. "'What can be the matter?' asked Leschetizky. "'The matter? It is very simple,' said Rubinstein. "'I am nervous. I am too nervous to play before those pupils.' But they walked downstairs, arm in arm, to the piano. A few wrong notes at first acted like balm to the expectant and overjoyed class, and Rubinstein played himself into one of the grandest and most sublime moods. They loved each other like brothers, and when Rubinstein died, Leschetizky was unable to give any lessons for many days. Someone brought the Rubinstein concerto to play in the class, and Leschetizky tried to accompany it. At the opening chords, his hands trembled and faltered, and it was with great difficulty that he finished the first movement. 
In the second movement, his eyes were blinded by tears. He was unable to proceed and left the room weeping. Pupils were very timid about bringing Rubinstein's compositions to him for study for a long time. Later, when he was calmer, nothing pleased him more than to hear his music, either at his own house or in concerts. At such times his behavior was often as if one had made him a present. He felt it a personal favor to him to play a piece of Rubinstein. No night was too stormy and no effort too great to prevent his being present at concerts where Rubinstein's pieces were played in a whole program as by Paul de Conne, or in part by other artists. Leschetitsky himself played everything that Rubinstein had written and showed his pupils as nearly as possible the way that Rubinstein had played them. He wanted his pieces to be interpreted according to Rubinstein's idea of them, and often he would ask his pupil to wait a moment to give him time to think and to remember. He would sit with his head in his hands for some time, then walk around the room, then come back to the piano and play the piece not once, but many times, explaining that at one time Rubinstein had interpreted it so, at another time so, and again quite differently, and always with an atmosphere of free fantasy. There was one great crescendo after another, as if he were sorry to stop, and if one could understand this intense personal quality of emotion that he had in playing, then one could play Rubinstein. <laughs> 